Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and this week I'm joined by Lawrence Dunhill and James Illman. During the pandemic, the mechanism in which hospitals were paid by commissioners was significantly changed. But as reported by us last week, these temporary measures are finally due to come to an end. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing what this means for providers in the months ahead. Also, we'll be updating you on the progress of virtual wards, um, a key part of the planning guidance released at the end of last year for the NHS. So first of all, um, let's talk about the national payment system. Um, Lawrence, NHS England has um, very recently set out a new system, but before we get into that, I think it would be helpful just to set out how things worked pre-pandemic and then some of the changes that were made in 2020. Sure. So before the pandemic, the the NHS was sort of in the process of moving away from activity-based payment tariffs to more of a sort of mixed model where you you had a a set amount of guaranteed income and then and then an element of um, activity based payments. Um, When COVID hit this was um, this was all replaced by essentially every trust being given a block contract um, for the for the value of what their of what they had actually been spending. and then they they received top up payments if their spending went over this um, to to bring them up to balance. And and this was this was essentially all part of the the government's pledge to give the NHS whatever it needs uh, to to cope with COVID. Um, and and during the last two years, there's been very little to to no scrutiny or sort of hard regulation on on what trusts are spending. Um, and it it means that, sp- that spending has has been huge over the last two years, not just in the NHS, but within the wider Department of Health budget for things like test and trace and PPE. Um, so so 50 billion extra was spent in 2021, the first year of COVID, and 30 billion in 21, 22. Um, so wow. there's 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 a lot of concern that that needs to be brought down quite quickly to the to the levels that were planned before COVID, um, and there's lots of scrutiny on it from Conservative MPs who are unhappy about the the national insurance um, hike, for example, to pay for pay for some of the long term increases in health funding. Um, I'll, I'll I'll let you come in there, Annabel, because it's, it's a yeah no um, perhaps then so what. Uh, what is um, NHS England proposing now? And I know that uh, we covered this last week um, on our website. But yeah, how how does it differ from the block payments contract? Yeah, so the, the, there's there's this um, pressure to to have more uh, grip on NHS spending, um, and the, last month we saw some briefings uh, from the government to to the some of the right, more right wing newspapers uh which were saying there's going to there's going to be a big return to payment by results and um the a system where trust would be rewarded for doing well and punished for doing badly um rather than just being given um given money that they are spending um and and this this seemed designed to kind of appease uh some of the more hawkish people on the nhs uh, uh hawkish people in government sorry um mm-hmm. But what what is actually happening is a is 
much more of a halfway house and and so it's going back to what was due to be implemented before coronavirus so um it's a it's a mix of payment by results and a block contract so there'll be there'll be a fixed element which will be negotiated locally between commissioners and trusts but it will be based on what they've been spending over the last six months and then there'll be a variable element which will go up and down based on the amount of activity they're doing um, and so that that's the sort of payment by results bit but it's not it's not pure payment by results because that's only a an element of it I'm sort of uh, I think 20 percent ish was the was the suggested amount before before the pandemic so we know that for a long time um, reducing unnecessary um, patient follow-up appointments has, has been discussed um, is this also a part of this kind of new um, payment system yeah so that so there's a there's a concern with moving back to activity-based payments that trust will then just focus on the activity that is easy and 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 quicker to do and cheaper to do such as outpatient follow-up appointments um, which which don't actually get patients off the waiting list um, and we, we've seen lots of kind of policy um, policies put forward over the last six months about patient initiated follow-ups and things mm. and this is now backed up in the in the tariff which will uh, cut the price for outpatient follow-up appointments by 25 percent and so that disincentivizes follow-ups and so in theory frees up more resources and clinicians to do first outpatient appointments and mm. get that and get that pathway started and pull people through the waiting list. Mm. So what's what's the reaction been like to this um, from providers, of course, but you know, from external voices as well. And do you think that trusts con considering, you know, things are still pretty difficult that they're kind of ready for this change? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's been quite interesting because the the initial um, the initial kind of cut price. So if a, if a trust, for example, does less elective activity than it was supposed to, then it, it's it's going to receive a reduced payment as, as a kind of penalty. Um, and the the initial penalty that was proposed. Just before Christmas was a 50 percent penalty. Um, of, of the kind of difference in what they've achieved as compared to what they were supposed to do. Um, and then this went out to consultation and there was there was quite a lot of um, concern from the NHS that this was too harsh a penalty. Um, but it seems as though the there was also responses to this consultation from the government, which didn't think it was harsh enough. And so they've increased the penalty and and NHS things have actually quite unusually done a had issued another consultation sort of reconsulted re with a, with the harsher penalty that the government wanted so despite lots of feedback from trust saying 50% is too high they've listened to the they, they've done what the government wanted it seemed and put it up to 75% and say mm. tough and said tough luck to the NHS um mm. And so, uh, as as you as you would expect, that there is there is concern from trusts and NHS providers issued a statement on this, um, saying 
well, trust lots of lots of hospitals are not going to be able to cover their costs, um, which which may well be true. But as we've seen in previous years, things change during the year. Plans mm. plans often do not go to plan, and um, there are there are top ups and so on in the year. So it's going to be an in, it's going to be interesting. We're, we're kind of moving back to a more normal financial regime and um, those sorts of difficult conversations that regulators will have with trusts about their performance against financial targets are going to come back. Um, and yeah, so it's going to it's going to be interesting to see kind of how how significant that becomes or or, or whether it, it kind of takes a back seat to performance on elective targets. I think now's a good point to bring to bring James in um, to a conversation. Um, just kind of getting more into why they're making these financial changes now, and this is of course intertwined with the elective recovery plan that we've spoken about on the podcast um, a few times before. So, yeah. J- James, what's your take on that? My take, yeah, I, th- I thought. I mean, I mean, Lawrence explained the changes very well. We're going. it's not a radical shift, but it is a significant shift back to um, a more, um, yeah, performance orientated model. Uh, And the NHS in general is moving back to a more grippy performance orientated environment, which during the COVID period would rightly lifted because everyone was head down, focused on, you know, uh, the unprecedented pressures of the pandemic, but the reality is the NHS uh, has got to get its spending back into kilter again. Um, and also there's a big old backlog to chew through. So we know that the uh, the broad headline target that the NHS has committed itself to is to be delivering 130% of um, pre-pandemic levels of activity by 2025 um, and that's a really big ask um, and on the kind of escalator on the way the staging post targets on the way to that this this year um, uh, trust is supposed to be doing 110 percent um, more um, uh, sorry 110 percent of the pre-pandemic levels so um, quite a big hike in year. How do you achieve that? Well, there's various, you know, new ways of working initiatives and, you know, super Saturdays from running more clinics, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the financial um, system is is always going to be, you know, one of the main drivers of uh, performance. So, um, yeah, that's 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 how I think this kind of fits into uh, the bigger picture, which involves a renewed um, uh, focus on performance uh, and be on elective activity in general. The, there's there's one other quite quite uh, clever and handy way in which they're going to meet the 110% target uh, from April, which is um, to to provide more help to GPs to to prevent referrals in the first place and so it, it, there's quite a, there's 
there's probably a significant chunk of patients that come onto the waiting list where a GP perhaps isn't quite sure whether they need secondary care, but they do it to be on the safe side uh, or they're kind of pressured into it perhaps by the patient. Um, and there's there's this idea that if the GP can talk to a consultant, a sort of specialist and receive some advice, in in some cases you can avoid that referral altogether and avoid the, the patient coming onto the waiting list. Um, and, and they're going to, where that happens, they're going to count that towards the performance against the 110%, uh, which it sort of sounds a bit like something out of yes, minister, they're going <laughs> to, they're going to hit the target by doing, by not doing anything. Um, but if it's done well, it's, it's quite a sensible and a, an efficient thing to do. How well did that go down among GPs, do you think? Or was it too soon to say? Uh, too, too soon to say. Too soon to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, thank you. I think that's a good explainer of like quite a tricky um, topic, but also relating to this and relating to flow and activity um, our virtual wards, um, as promised. Um, we're going to be talking about that now. And James, this is something that you're very interested in. Um, and it, as I said, it was a key part of the planning guidance released at the end of last year. And I also believe in the elective recovery plan. So um, you've written in detail about virtual wards this week. Um, what, how, how, how is this progressing, this ambition to create more virtual wards? Yeah, OK, so I, I mean, I think just a bit of background, virtual wards as a concept, as people often point out, have been around for about, you know, 20 odd years or so, sort of hospital at home, remote monitoring, all that sort of uh, stuff um, called different things. But effectively, you know, patient gets sent home with some vital signs, monitoring equipment and monitors stuff like oxygen levels, which are especially important in uh, in dealing with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but the, the, the requirement to um, free up hospital beds and also to get patients to COVID free environments, which so as we know, a lot of people caught COVID in hospitals, um, really provided um, the right drivers for this um, whole agenda to be kind of put centre stage during the pandemic. Um, so for the last couple of years, we've seen an increasing number of trusts um, operating virtual wards, largely, but not solely, for their COVID patients. So um, uh, there are a lot of people in NHS England who thought, aha, this is, you know, this is, this is the big idea. This is how we're going to create much better flow for our systems. It's how we're going to yeah, uh, be able to sort of get around a lot of problems with discharges. We're going to be able to free up lots of beds um, and, you know, patient experience wise, when it works well, it, it it can be a much better experience for the patient who gets to go home. Now, obviously, there's there's some problems with isolation, etc. But um, yeah, there, there are there's there's definite patient uh, experience pluses to this. So um, but it's it's one of those uh, debates which, first of all, um, there is no one big idea that's going to sort out the NHS. This isn't a silver bullet. Let's dismiss any of that uh, right away. But at the same point, um, this, this it's, it's an idea of a lot of potential. The word potential is one that if you speak to, you know, most any people, they'll say, oh, virtual wars, loads of potential. Right. OK, so 
Uh, NHS England set this big old target in the planning guidance, uh, which is for um, to have 40 to 50 virtual beds per 100,000 of population by December 2023. Uh, that feels quite meaningless. Let me just give it a bit of kind of context. That's around between 22 and 28,000 virtual beds um, based on you know, English population being around 56 million. So again, just to contextualise that figure, uh, call it 25,000, the kind of midpoint. That's about a quarter of the acute bed base in the NHS, which is around 100,000, and around 10 times the number of the circa 2,500 virtual beds in the estimated 53 wards that were in operation as of December 2021, when NHS England set out um, its guidance. Uh, and in, in the guy in the planning guidance, it even says that NHS England wants to move on this as rapidly as possible. So, you know, lots of pace wanted. They've put up 450 million uh, for for kind of buying of the equipment and such. And uh, Thatcher uh, Javid, who uh, is a tech enthusiast, and we're all tech enthusiasts now. He's very keen on the idea. He was talking about it at the HSJ Tech Summit last week. Um, however, um, as ever, there is a but, and it's a, the, the classic kind of policy bind whereby system leaders and ministers wanted everything done yesterday, uh, and then the, the, the clinicians turn around and say, hang on a minute, um, uh, we, we, you know, we need to slow down a bit, this, this, this policy mm. isn't ready yet. So, so why are clinicians not so happy about this. Not so happy about it. Yes. Yes. Again, (laughs) most clinicians, again, they will say this idea does have potential. It does definitely have potential. They'll say, I'm not a naysayer about this. However, um, the speed of the rollout, you know, um, there there hasn't been a kind of gold standard um, peer reviewed study done on the costs and you know pro, pros and cons of the virtual wards so it's been various kind of anecdotal um and sort of smaller studies done but there hasn't been a, a proper gold standard one and that that's always gonna um irk um you know clinicians who are very kind of evidence-based um but also just the the kind of the concerns that have been raised and and this you know we were raising these back in 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 in, in december when the uh, plans first got announced in, in HSJ, um, there, there was also another target for just to have 15% of their COVID patients in um, uh, these virtual beds. So, so and, you know, people were saying that the, the workforce um, uh, problems could really bite. Uh, mm. I wanted and, to ask you about that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So, in, in terms of the the acute medical journals last edition, which I'm sure you've all read, uh, has a um, uh, an editorial in it in which um, Tim Cooksley, the editor in chief, talks about virtual wards um, in the short term being uh, very resource intense is the word he uses. The workforce pressures are likely to be underestimated and this could lead to uh, the risk of both the success of implementation and more importantly patient safety. And he kind of explains 
that you know you need when you're delivering a, a, a virtual ward you need a telephone line that requires staffing for at least 12 hours putting you know sort of 12 7 staffing with hours of hours cover where appropriate these staff uh, need to be supervised by experienced clinical registered professional who's also responsible for proactive daily calls um what what what's been named a, a virtual call round uh, but sorry virtual ward rounds um and um yeah i mean to some degree of course the staffing is going to be a problem the staffing is 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 a challenge in every part of the nhs um but i think particularly when you're dealing with stuff that that, that doesn't have a firm evidence base on it yet etc etc you can see why clinicians are particularly um concerned about this uh, and um, yeah, it's not just the staffing, it's getting the right kit. Again, I was watching a YouTube video from Norfolk and Norwich uh, and the work that they're doing there. They're, they're, they're one of the trusts who are kind of in the vanguard of this and they're expanding quite rapidly and, and all the kit looks, you know, it all works. It's all, all looks brand new. It's coming out of brand new boxes, all very nice. Um, hopefully that will be the case elsewhere, but that is not generally the experience of the NHS with kit, um, as 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 we know. In terms of a um, a tech adopter, the NHS does not have um, the best of track records. So yeah, there's there's the staffing pressures, there's the fact that you know need to get all all the kit, and and they're just very much a kind of work in progress as a concept as well, you know. They haven't really worked out how they're going to count the benefits of it yet. Mm. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to do all this work now, um, but you, you know there were concerns raised to me that um, the systems that were being spoken about would allow trusts to, in effect, mark their own homework. They're going to be asked um, how many bed days the their virtual wards had 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 saved the hospital and. And to some degree, yes, they they may well be end up marking their own homework for a bit. But as another um, senior figure said to me, they say you you know a, a, a quite kind of permissive um, environment will probably be required at the start anyway, because this is a new thing. This is something a lot of trusts, all right, some of the trusts have got quite a lot of experience, but as a system as a whole, uh, it doesn't. And um, yeah, it's going to be. Um, a voyage of discovery so perhaps the counting needs to be a bit generous at the beginning and i wonder if you have you heard of trusts who do have more experience making this sort of thing work kind of working with trusts who are less you know are new to That's it a bit of kind of mutual aid going on i haven't heard of that i'm sure we will see kind of buddying and fast followers and uh, etc you, you would hope that because these are ics targets Mm. that you would get so going back to Norfolk and Norwich uh, in that health economy you've got two district general hospitals you've got James Padgett and you've got Queen Elizabeth Hospital Kings Lynn mm. I'm not sure what their virtual ward um, arrangements are in those two DGHs but you've got uh, I do know that uh, the Norfolk and Norwich they had 20 um, virtual beds and they wanted to increase that to 80 uh, so yeah you would have thought that they're working on a kind of provider collaborative there so that you would have thought the Norfolk and Norwich could could then facilitate um, work going on at the other two. So yeah, you you would hope there would be a kind of 
dissemination of of best practice but Again, as we know, that's not something the NHS has got a great track record on either. But you would hope within health economies at least there'd be a good a good kind of spread because these targets will be set at set at an ICS level anyway. So it's mm. be in everyone's um interests to meet those targets. Absolutely. I'm sure if anyone out there listening has got some virtual ward good practice i'm sure james would be very keen to hear from you yeah <laughs> um but i think that's that's bringing the podcast to a close this week thank you both so much for joining me and just to remind us to listeners our podcast is available every week on the hsj website and across all main podcast channels and please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already thanks for listening and we'll be back next week <laughs>